We want to welcome our chapel and our cactus and our venue as they join us for our time in the Word. And uh, we're grateful for uh, the different uh, congregations that we have. And, and you know, t today we're going to start a new series. I'm going to pray in just a minute that uh, we announced in our announcement time. But I want to comment on how we're hoping how watershed and important what is going to happen in our church over the next few weeks will be. Um, many of you in life have had moments where uh, you, you say, in light of something going on in your life, you might find yourself saying these words, I get it, I get it. I, I, that's happened to you before. Maybe at work or in your marriage or in your parenting or in your hobby, you, you, you don't initially understand something, you don't initially experience something, but then you, you go through an experience or you go through an aha moment or whatever it might be, and you find yourself saying, ah, okay, I get it, I get it. And we all have experiences like that. Uh, this past summer, as I was away on my sabbatical, uh, at one point, a couple of our staff, the executive leadership team, came out to where I was in Michigan for a couple days of prayer and planning. And we had a lengthy discussion when I was in Michigan as to, in the next season of life for Scotts Bible Church, what is it that we want us all to get? It was, it was a great discussion because it was brainstorming and dreaming. And when we thought of you, all of you, and we said, what is it that we, we care most about for you that you get when it comes to your walk with God, your, your, your spiritual lives, what would that be? And, and it was like an epiphany moment for us as a leadership staff. We were in this living room of a small house in Michigan, and it just kind of all came together. And we walked away from that time with three things. We said, more than anything, what we'd love our church to get is to get God get real, and get out there. I mean, it really jumped off the page. It's like the Holy Spirit nudging us big time. Uh, we're going to talk about that over the next few weeks, what, what it means for you and I to get God. And I mean really get God. You're going to see that today to the point where you can say in your life, I get it. I get him. I understand. I'm on the right road. What does that mean? And then next week, we're going to talk about what it means to get real. You know, Christians, I hate to say, the world looks at us, and there are times that they see us as fake as a $3 bill. I mean, they just go, are these guys really real? Are they authentic? I mean, and, and so we're going to talk about what does it mean for you and I to have an authentic, real relationality with God and with those around us? And then in three weeks, we're going to talk about uh, what it means to get out there. That is, you already are out there throughout the week, but what does it mean for us to have impact in this world around us? See, here's what we believe. If we can get these, those three things, if we can get God, get real, and get out there, I think there'll be no stopping us in the next season of life here at Scottsdale Bible Church. And we really are setting ourselves up for this next season, this fall now. And, and, and I believe that we're onto something really significant here that God has put before us. So I, I'm praying for you over the next few weeks uh, that you might get it. And today, as we've already said, we're starting with probably, well, is absolutely the most crucial of all the three things we want to get. This is the true north of it all, uh, getting God. And so what am I going to do right now before I open the Bible? I'm going to pray. So why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray right now. Oh God, we're going to learn some things about you today that are going to blow our minds your word is so amazing, it's so true, it's so awesome, it's so powerful. I've been reading it now, Lord, for 35 years and I still feel like I'm a babe. I still feel like I'm just getting going. And so God, I pray that as we open your book now with this very daunting task before us to try to understand you and distill our understanding of you down to a few very important things, I pray, God, that you'd Give us wisdom by your Holy Spirit. Empower us by your Spirit to rightly divide your word of truth. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. So I want you to think of all the things that Christians tell others that they need to do in order to get God, because we're good at doing that. I, I hear some Christians tell other people that they need to read the Bible and listen to what it says, and that if they do that, they will get God. And by the way, there's obviously merit to that. I, I hear other Christians tell other people that they need to repent of their sin and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and if they do that, then they will get God. And again, I, I think that's very true. But then I hear other Christians tell other people that they need to go to church and get involved, and if they do that, then they're going to get God. 
And then I hear other Christians tell other people that they need to change their lifestyle, stop flirting so much with the world, and get obedient. And if they do that, they're going to get God. And then I hear them get down to real brass tacks. I hear some Christians tell people that you need to become a five-point Calvinist in order to get God, or that you need to get missional in order to get God, or that you need to get baptized in order to get God. I even have some of my Christian friends that try to convince me that I need to have a special breakthrough experience with God in order for me to get God. I've been doing this, guys, for 35 years. Think about all the things that we Christians tell others that they need to do in order to get God. And don't get me wrong. Many of the things that I just listed, I believe, are true. They are good and fine in their own right, and we talk about them all the time here at Scottsdale Bible Church. But here's what we need to do today. If we had to distill what the Bible says about what it means to get God to what is most core, look at me, to what always works, to what is universally true, to what we know to be rock solid, what would it be? Have you ever thought about that? To put it this way, if somebody says you at work tomorrow or at the club or wherever you're going to be, hey, I got 10 minutes, uh, help me understand God. Tell me what I need to do to get God. That's probably not going to happen. But if that did happen to you, what would you say in those 10 minutes? But what is most important to you about God that you would believe would be universally true in the universe for all of us? I want to share with you today what I believe that Jesus and the Bible teaches us fundamentally about God and how we are to truly get God in our lives. And I'm going to warn you right now that this, that this centers around something that most Christians, believe it or not, do not talk about very often. I hardly hear them talk about this. It's something not very well understood or even applied today by most believers, at least in, in, in its fullness. And yet, as you're going to see today, it is the absolute most key thing that we need to know about God if we're ever going to get God. And it all centers around what theologians call the Trinity, the Trinity. I want to show you what I mean. I want to look as we open up God's word right now to some of the most famous parting words of Jesus. These are words that he ushered after his resurrection just days before he would ascend into heaven. So these are parting words. These are crucial words. They are core to what Jesus wants us to know because this is what he's wrapping up his earthly ministry with. And they're found in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now, I have read this passage for you, I'm guessing at least a dozen times, two dozen times in the last 10 years that I've been with you. And so we've looked at these words a lot, but interestingly, we're gonna notice something in here that I've actually never talked specifically about in light of the, 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 in this passage here. So uh, let's read it. It says, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So let's unpack the action here, and it's going to lead up to that highlighted portion here. Um, as the message of Jesus gets out through you and me going into the world, we're going to get to that in week three, Jesus tells us here that we are to make disciples of any and all who believe, and we're then to teach them to follow all that Jesus has said. And then as a sign and symbol that this has happened, as kind of a barometer of whether somebody gets it or not, is when they get baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's a really important phrase there, wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's got to be a phrase that kind of even caught the original disciples off guard when Jesus was saying this. 
I mean, and if I was a disciple back then, I probably would have been like, okay, I get it. Well, so go into the world and make disciples. Understand that one. You've shown us that for three years and to teach them to obey all that you've commanded. I get that. You're going to be with us all until the end of the age. Baptize them what? In the name of what? You know, some Christians almost treat this like it's symbolic or poetic. You ever notice that? I mean, when we do baptism, Steve, they're like, oh, isn't it quaint that we say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Believe me, Jesus never intended that to be quaint or poetic or anything silly like that. This is rugged, life-changing theology that he is giving us here. And he's basically saying that God needs to be understood and experienced as a father and as the son and as the Holy Spirit. This is so important that whenever you baptize anybody, Jesus is telling us here, make sure that you're baptizing people who understand that this is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they are bending the knee to today, that they're believing in today, that they're saying they've had an experience with here today. Don't miss this, guys. What Jesus is telling us here is that when we know and experience God as Father and then as Son and then as Spirit, for our purposes today, we now get him. We, our lives are changed. Things are different. The Trinity is absolutely central to knowing and getting him. And now, as a quick side note, because this is such an important thing in our understanding and experience of God, this idea of God as a Trinity, I've decided over the summer that this next winter, 2018, uh, we're going to devote an entire series to this study of the Trinity. Uh, some of you are going to love this, and the rest of you, hopefully in the end, are going to love it. Uh, we've been doing a study of the Gospel of John over the last few years as a church. We've done the first 13 chapters. We have a little ways to go. And we're going to take a look this winter at John chapter 14 for two months, the months of February and March. And I got to tell you, if you've never read John chapter 14, you might want to read it now because the words will rock your world. Uh, Jesus consumes almost the entire chapter and he talks about what? The Father and then the Son and then he caps off with the Holy Spirit. It's almost the first introduction that we get to this, at least from Jesus' standpoint, of this idea of, of, of what the Trinity is about. We're going to park in front of that uh, this winter so that you and I can finally understand uh, some of the things associated with the Trinity. Uh, but for now, today, as we do this single message on what it means to get God centered on the Trinity, uh, what I want to do in the 30 or so minutes we have left is give you a very brief primer or kind of an introductory lesson uh, on the Trinity, because here's what a lot of people don't understand about the Trinity. Uh, some people think that the Trinity is a made-up doctrine by a bunch of theologians over the last 2,000 years. It, it couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity to be sure. That is a word that, that we have used to describe, now watch this, what the teachings of the Bible are about who God is once you add it all up. In other words, for thousands of years, people have been reading the Bible, trying to understand who God is. And I'm going to show you this in black and white here in just a second. The best minds, the most illumined minds, uh, some of the greatest theologians down through the years, Aquinas, Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Spurgeon, all the greats, have basically walked away from an honest reading of the scriptures and said, this is who God is. And when you understand it, it's mysterious in one sense, but it adds up to what we're talking about as the Trinity. So if we look at the biblical data, add it all up, here would be four statements that would be safe to say about what the Bible says about God. First statement would be this, that the Bible says there is one God and one only. Give me a head nod that you all understand that. I mean, you find this one early on in the Bible. It's like the very first commandment. <laughs> you shall have no other gods before you because I, the Lord, am one. So the Bible makes it very clear that when it comes to God, it's what theologians call monotheism as opposed to polytheism, multiple gods. There is only one God. But here's where it gets thick because as you read on in the Bible then, we see that God exists in three distinct persons. In other words, he exists 
as Father, he exists as the Son, and he exists as the Holy Spirit. So I'm using my words very carefully here. There's only one God in essence, but his existence is in three distinct persons. And again, it's hard to get your mind around this, but this is what the Bible reveals. There's actually hints to this early on in the Bible. In the very first chapter, Genesis chapter 1, and for years theologians thought this was just poetic, uh, but there's a spot where God describes himself in the plural. He describes himself as us or our. And again, that like breaks the biggest rule of who God is, right? Like as God is one. And yet early on in the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, he's referring to himself in the plural. And it wasn't until we really get through to the New Testament that we start to understand what God meant by that. It was foreshadowing what was to eventually be be absolutely revealed that he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, let me blow your mind even more. Uh, When you look closely, each of these three persons are all equally God, and they are eternal in nature, and yet they are distinct, acting in full unity because they are one God. This is beyond the scope of today's message, but... I mean, I'll just confuse you even more. What we're not saying here is that there are three manifestations of God. Some people like to say that, like maybe God just appears in three different ways. Kind of like if you were to dress as a man and then dress as a woman, which don't do that, and then then dress as, as a child, you would be appearing in three different modes, right? Theologians call that modalism. And some have suggested, well, maybe that's the way God is. He appears as a father. He appears as a, as a human. He appears as a spirit, but that's not what we're saying. We're saying God actually is the Father. He actually is the Son in essence. He actually is the Holy Spirit in one God. Blow your mind yet? And then some have said, well, maybe he's like one-third the Father and one-third the Son and one-third the Spirit. That'd be a nice way to understand it, right? A tripartite view of God. No, no, problem is (laughs) Jesus claimed to be fully God. The Son claims to be fully God. And the spirit is described as fully God. So here's the math. 100%, 100%, 100% equals 100%. (laughs) Blow your mind yet? You see, here's what people need to understand about God. He's incomprehensible. He's supra-rational, meaning way beyond our rationality. We are finite. He is infinite. And as Reinhold Niebuhr said so well, when the finite looks into the infinite, he gets dizzy. And the reality is, is that if you don't get dizzy trying to understand God, you're not understanding him, amen? So I'm okay with the mystery here. I'm okay with the fact that this boggles my mind. Here's what's important for you and I to understand about this. And again, I'm gonna blow through it all right now. This is the way that God has revealed himself to you and I. Whether we fully understand it or not, whether our rational minds can understand how one plus one plus one equals one, (laughs) which is essentially what God has said, whether or not we can fully understand that or not, it doesn't matter. What matters at the end of the day is that we're understanding rightly whom God says he is, and as we're going to see in just a second here, that we believe him and follow him as he has revealed himself to us. Amen? And again, some of you are fighting me on this. Like, well, you're kind of shutting your mind off and you're, you're too okay with mystery. I've had people say it to me for years. You know, the problem is that with is that if you're a good parent, you're with me here today. Amen? I mean, when, you, when your three-year-old comes to you and says, Mommy or Daddy, uh, can I have a Snickers bar for a snack? Your first question is, how do you know what a Snickers bar is? Because we don't eat those things in our family, but they know what it is. They saw a TV commercial or somebody ruined them at the nursery or something like that. And, and, and you say, no, you can't have a Snickers bar. Uh, you can have a, a piece of broccoli or a piece of cheese, you know. And, 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 and can you imagine if, if, if your little three-year-old said, I don't, want a, I don't want a piece of broccoli. I want a Snicker bar, you know. And, and no, you can't because it's three in the afternoon and we're not going to ruin your dinner. And imagine what would happen if your three-year-old said to you, I don't understand. Now, by the way, when they become teenagers, they're going to say that to you a lot. And so, you know, your three-year-old says, I don't understand. Why are you being this way? I, I don't understand why you won't. I, I don't understand. Are you concerned whether or not your child understands you or not? Or are you more concerned that your child listens to you or not? Which is it? Well, a good parent would say, hey, I've tried to explain myself to you as best I can. You got this little three-year-old mind. You're not going to fully understand it. But I love you. Listen to me. It's good for you. That's what a good parent does. 
Could it be that God does something similar with us? I'm a pretty intelligent guy. I'm not bragging. I just am. And I got an earned master. No, I'm not serious. I've t I know that sounded so arrogant. My mother had me tested, all right? So I... No, what I mean by that, though, is that I have an earned master's degree in theology. I, I, I've written papers on Augustine's theodicy. I, I understand philosophy, and, and, I, and I've read all the big guys and all that, and I get most of what they're saying. And here's my point. When I try to understand the Trinity, I'm lost. I, I can't explain it. I can't understand it. But at the end of the day, what I've learned to do if I want to get God is to accept it. Because by accepting it, I'm getting him. I, I want to go a little bit deeper right now with the Trinity. And some of you are going, really, really? You think you want to do that? I, I, I do. I, and I want to spend the rest of our time that we have um, showing you why possibly God has, or God exists as Father and as Son as, and Spirit. And, and you're going to find this extremely practical to your life. Because I think when Christians or anybody finally understands why God exists as Father, and why He exists as Son, and why He exists as Spirit, how that benefits our lives. You start to understand maybe why the Trinity is so important. I, I sat in my office this week, give me another click, or give me two more clicks here. Nope, one more. There you go. I, I, and fill them in. I, I sat in my office this week, and I thought, you know, if I had to explain to you, dear people, who the Father is in two words, and who the Son is in two words, and who the Spirit is in two words, Here's what I'd say. I would tell you that the Father is the sovereign sender. We'll get to, that, get to that in a second. I would tell you the Son is the rugged redeemer. And I would tell you that the Holy Spirit is the empowering enlightener. Notice first that the Bible, I believe, describes God very clearly, God the Father, as the sovereign sender. Look at Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 1 here. It says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ, and the implication has been, and from God the Father. So notice two things it's telling us about God here. First, it's telling us that God exists as the Father. Give me a head nod, y'all see that. God is our Father, and it's Father with a capital F because that's the person of God. In his person, he is our Father. But then notice that it's telling us, Paul the Apostle, is that when he was sent into the ministry, it was the Father who sent him through, and we'll get to this in a minute, Jesus Christ. And we're nudging up here against this idea of who God the Father is. Picture this. He is the sovereign one existing for all of eternity in heaven. He is the one who has never left that place because he is in ultimate control of all. The Psalms tell us he rules the entire universe from that place. He created everything that we see and even that which we do not see. Everything is under his authority. So he is the sovereign one who also sends and controls everything that happens on planet Earth. Look at how Jesus would tell us this when he was on this earth. Maybe some of these sayings of Jesus will now make sense to you because this confuses a lot of people when Jesus talks like this. He says here in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who, say this word with me, sent me. So again, maybe now it makes sense. Jesus is saying, look, the Father is in such control of everything that only those that he sends to me are the ones that need to come to me and those are the ones that I receive. Why? Because he's sovereign. God is in that much control. God the Father. And then Jesus makes it clear that the Father is the one who sent me here. And then at other times he'll say things like this, everything I see the Father do, that's the only thing I do. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me what to do. You see, God the Father is truly the sovereign one in control of all. And again, some of you might be tempted to think right now, well, yeah, yeah, okay, this was good for Jesus. I mean, but how does this affect me? <laughs> Glad you asked. But look at what Jesus would teach at one point. Isn't this, doesn't this rock your world? Matthew 10, 29. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground 
apart from your father, meaning your father's will, his control, his sovereignty. You know, it blows me away about this, this teaching here of Jesus is that sparrows back then were no different than sparrows today. I'm not here to disparage sparrows, but do we all understand they're not the most important bird in the bird kingdom? Uh, Sparrows are not peacocks. Sparrows are not parrots. Uh, Sparrows are a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. And they die all the time in the woods, and not to put too fine a point on it, but most of us don't care. And God knows that. And so he's saying here that not a sparrow falls to the ground, this insignificant bird outside of the will of the Father. Does that blow you away? I mean, we could substitute centipede, ant, amoeba, whatever you want to put there. It's all under the Father's control. And here's what blows me away about that. And you think he's not in control of your life? I mean, some of you come to me, and I love you to death, but you whine. You say, oh, things are so bad. Da, 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 da. And I sit there and go, okay, I know, I know they're bad, but guess what? He's still on the throne, amen? He's in control of your very life. He's in control of everything that happens here on planet Earth. It's all got a plan, and if you trust him, you're smack dab in the center of that plan because he is that good, he is that sovereign, and he loves you that much. That's the Father as he has revealed himself. And so honestly, as I'm watching what's going on with Irma right now, I was in my office uh, tracking it just before this service. And, you know, I'm praying just like you guys are as it makes its way up the Florida coast. And with what happened with Houston, we've been so generous there. And we're praying for protection and for God's provision in the aftermath, all of that. But you know what I, I mostly pray? Do you dare pray this? I mostly pray that God will let everybody know in the midst of these tragedies that he is there. Like he did with Job. What do you say to Job? I'm in the storm. I'm in the darkness. What did David learn in the Psalms? Remember this? Even if I go down to the very pit of Sheol, you are there. If I go to the far ends of the universe, you are there. Even the darkness cannot hide you. Why? Because he's everywhere. He's that sovereign. He is that good. And it matters for our very lives. The first thing we learn about God And looking at the Father, he is the sovereign sender, and it changes everything about how we see him. Now, we're just getting ramped up. Notice a second way that God is described in the scriptures, a a second aspect to his personhood, and that is that he is the rugged redeemer in the Son. Let me show you why I say rugged redeemer, because I think some of you will like this. In John 1, verse 14, it says this, the word, Jesus, became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, try to tune into this. I, I, I really am pretty good at reading you guys, and I'm looking at all of you right now, and you're getting very glassy-eyed as we go along because it's, it's like 5 to noon, and it's opening day of football, go Browns, things like that, and, uh, and, and, and you're thinking about memes or wherever you're going after lunch, but, but just if you can like dig deep right now and give me 15 more minutes, I want to explain to you what here is going on here because it's very, very, very life-changing. In John chapter 1, verse 1, 13 verses before this, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Powerful statement. So if you're reading that for the first time, you go, I wonder who that Word is. Then you go down to verse 14, and it says, the Word became flesh. Well, obviously now it's telling us that's Jesus, because the book is about Jesus. And in becoming flesh, he made his dwelling among us, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Now, pause right there. So, all of a sudden, this word who is with God and who was God, eternally existing for for, for all of eternity, now becomes flesh and is described as the one and only Son. But wait a second. I thought God was Father. Who's this Son? Well, again, we're trying to understand who God is here. In a book in which it says there's only one God, you shall have no other gods before you, all of a sudden now, God is revealed, but it's more than just revealing, he is also the Son and comes to this earth. And how did he come to us? Full of grace 
and truth. This is why I call him the rugged redeemer. I almost called him the compassionate redeemer in my, that was my original first iteration of my outline. And it's true that he's the compassionate redeemer, but it almost makes Jesus sound too soft because he didn't come to us full of grace and compassion. He came to us full of grace and, say his word with me. Anybody tell you the truth lately about your life? Kim did that to me yesterday. <laughs> she did. We, we had a knockout drag out, and I'm not going to tell you it because it would be inappropriate. And, uh, but I, I realized in the midst of our knockout drag out that um, I was being a typical man and wrong and overbearing and all these things. And then I got into a discussion on why I'm that way after 30 years of marriage and all of that. And, and, and arguing that I'm passionate about life doesn't cover it. And so I, uh, I, I, I heard a lot of truth yesterday. And here's what I, I know about truth. As good as it is for my soul, it's hard to hear. It's gritty. Somewhat difficult. And Jesus came to us full of grace and truth. And he walked around the Holy Land for three years just telling people the truth and hugging them in grace and, and preaching the kingdom of, the, of, of God as God come to this earth. And that's why I say that Jesus, if anybody was, is the rugged redeemer who wants to be Lord and Savior of your life. He is our redeemer. Look at how Galatians would put it. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the fullness of time came, God... The Father sent, why? Because he's the sovereign sender, forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that this son might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So obviously, just a cursory reading of this would tell us that the most important thing the son came to do, full of grace and truth, is to redeem us. Now, I'm going to ask you a very simple question and I'm going to set you up for a little bit of failure here, but I'm going to prevent you from at least acknowledging your failure here, and most of you won't fail. Um, but, but the question I'm going to ask you, and I don't mean to insult you, but, but the, the second graders in Sunday school today would know the answer to this question here at our church. Did that set you up enough? But it's a very, very important question. And the question is this. What did Jesus come to redeem us from? Anybody know the answer to that? Say the word. Sin. I, I hope that was the word. Some of you, that's not the first thing that came to your mind, and that's why I'm glad you didn't yell it out. But our second graders would have got that one. They would have said clearly that Jesus came to redeem us of our sin. And you're saying, well, what else could he have redeemed us from? As I hear Christians talk, I sometimes get embarrassed. The way I hear some Christians talk, Jesus came to redeem me from my bad financial choices. Jesus came to redeem my failed marriage. Jesus came to redeem my kids who aren't turning out. Jesus came to redeem my job that I hate. Now, let me ask you guys a quick question. Does Jesus care about your marriage, your kids, your money, and your job? And does he want to help you with those, yes or no? Yes, of course he does. Here's how we know, though, that at core, he didn't come to redeem you necessarily from those things. And that's that none of those things are going to send you to hell. Smile, that's good news. In other words, your failed marriage, your bad parenting, your stupid financial decisions, those are not things that are going to send you to hell per se. The only thing that has the power to send you to hell is your sin. Now, here's the bad news. You were born with it. You were born with a propensity inside of you to say to God, I'm doing my own thing. I got it. I don't need you. I'm going my own way. What does Isaiah say? We all like sheep have been led astray. We've all gone our own way. We all have that inside of us. And God says that is sin, that is stubbornness, and that separates me from you for all of eternity. And so something had to be done about that. Jesus came that he might redeem us of our sin. That same sin that separates us from God for all of eternity. And what does that mean? Look at uh, Ephesians 1, 7. It says, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood because he went to a wooden cross and died for your sin, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Wow. You got a rugged redeemer who came to this earth full of grace and truth. That's how we understand God the Son. And God the Son has become your redeemer to forgive you of your sin so that you can spend eternity with this trinity of God. You understanding God yet? 
And again, let me blow your mind even more. One last scripture before we move on to the Spirit. Romans 8, verse 34. I love this. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and now intercedes for us. You know, sometimes the way I hear Christians talk about their salvation, how they understand Jesus, they, they talk in the past. You ever notice that? Well, hey, Mac, 40 years ago I accepted Jesus. I walked to the Billy Graham thing, and, you know, that was awesome. And, you know, and they, and they talk about, like, it's all in history. <laughs> and here's what I want to sometimes remind Christians of. By the way, I keep taking my glasses off because they're fogging. You guys got to stop getting me so excited. And, uh, and, 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 and I hear, you know, people talk about that. that and, I, and I think to myself, now, again, I don't mean to be insulting, but I think to myself, you do know that you're still sinning now, don't you? I mean, maybe you've covered some of the big ones, you know, and you're not addicted to, to the juice anymore, you know, and you're not, like, looking at a lot of porn online or any porn online. You're not, you know, cheating on your wife. You don't lie much. You know, you don't do things like that anymore. I get it. We tend to get our act together. But here's the dilemma, is that you still sin every day. And most of the time, you probably don't even know it. I mean, the Bible says that any... <laughs> Anytime we fall short of the glory of God, his goodness, his majesty, his high bar, you've sinned. I look at God and say, well, who can do that? And God says, no one. <laughs> That's why y'all need a redeemer. But every time I have a thought on the freeway when somebody cuts me off, Every time I have an ill feeling, does that ever happen? I mean, it happens to me all day long. I mean, somebody will say something in a meeting. I think, well, that's stupid. You know, and I have this ill feeling there, you know, and because again, I'm smarter than them. And so I have this, you know, <laughs> ill feeling, which by the way, that's a sin right there because that's arrogance, you know. And I mean, do you guys understand the trap here? We are, we are caught in our sin every moment of every day. Now, I'm going to get weepy. I, I don't want to get weepy. I, I, I lost it in the last service and we can't show that on the web. So I want to try to hold it together now. But this is so meaningful to me. Here's what this passage is saying to us. Is that every moment of every day when we sin, something's going on in heaven that concerns you. What's going on in heaven is that Satan accuses you before God and says, I'll pick up my dear friend Dale here, and he says, look what Dale did. Look what Dale thought. Look at what Dale said. And the second that that comes before the throne of God, forgive me, the son is right there. And the son looks to the father and says, Father, I covered that one. My blood covers Dale's sin. For all of eternity, I have forgiven him. And the son intercedes on our behalf until you finally die in which you'll be in his full glory. When we say Jesus is our Savior, it almost sounds so trite sometimes. We all understand what we mean by that. That every moment of every day, when you and I struggle with sin, he is there and forgives us of our sin. Again, I said a second ago, I've had kind of a bad weekend. I don't ever bleed on you guys for that, but I mean, Kim and I had a, a rough weekend. Don't worry, we're not like leaving each other or things silly like that, but, but, but it was a tough weekend. And I realized once again just how wretched I am. And, and, and I kind of got down on myself this weekend saying, geez, oh man, it's, I'm 53. I've been a Christian 35 years. I pastor a large church. You know, how in the world can you, can you relationally function like that? And so I'm confessing that before the Lord, even last night before bed. And, and you know what God says to me? And I hope he says this to you. It's okay. I forgive you. We're going to help you get better, <laughs> but I forgive you. So let's, let's stand up Let's pick up the pieces and let's start over. And I'll say to him, start over? What, like again? Like again? And what does he say? Yes, again. Seven times 70. That's what Jesus taught us. Again, you have a rugged redeemer. I want to show you a story right now, um, one of our famous My Stories. We just put this one together this week. And I, I warn you, I think it's pretty powerful about a guy that I've been watching over the last seven years uh, who came to this church, I mean, just really spiritually lost. And uh, he began to understand God as father. And then on one of our retreats, he understood God as son. And his life now is forever changed. So let me introduce you to Ed. You're going to be encouraged by his story.
Like so many other people in the Midwest, I got tired of the cold winters and the really bad economy. So I moved to Arizona in 1976. I was working at KOY Radio. And one day, this giant of a man walks past me in the hallway and he said, are you their meteorologist, Ed Phillips? You want to be on TV? And I said, sure. <laughs> so I ended up being on Channel 12 and worked there a number of years. Worked at uh, Channel 10 and Channel 15 for nine years and served in the Arizona State Senate for four years, two two-year terms. When the economy crashed in 2008, that was when things took a turn for the worse. It wasn't just the job that I lost, it was my house, most of my savings, and ultimately my wife. So uh, it was a very dark time in my life. Um, fast forwarding a bit, I was in a local service club and saw across the room this woman that I recognized from years ago. And it was love at first sight for me but it took her a while. So ultimately, after recovering with uh, everything that was going on in my life, I, I asked her out, and then we got to the big question. She said, would you go to church with me? And I said, sure. She said, well, you know, what is your religion? I said, well, I started out as an Episcopalian when I was a kid and drifted away from that, and my ex-wife was Jewish, so I practiced Judaism. So I was a little bit nervous because I had not been to a, a real large church before. I couldn't believe the smiles and everybody was happy and I'm going, where am I? And walked inside and heard the music and thought, I'm home. Sometimes when you have uh, an emptiness, you don't even know it. I had been very successful, but it still just was an emptiness. And it was, it was the first time that I felt real I had been coming to church for quite a while. A couple of guys said, hey, you know, we're gonna go to Lost Canyon. Why don't you go with us? When you're around like a couple of hundred men that all believe and all sing with one voice, if you're not moved by that, you may not have a heartbeat. It was so moving to me and it's like, wow, that's when it, it happened. That's when I came to Christ. I hear them announce that we have an upcoming baptism. It's going to be on July 30th. And so I flushed and I could feel, feel the goosebumps. That's my, it was my 65th birthday. I said, I'm gonna get baptized on July 30th on my 65th birthday. And I did, and it was great. <laughs> I find that just by not making a secret of my relatively newfound walk and not being timid or ashamed of it really impacts a lot of people. It's nice to have grace. God shows it to me every day. He helps me with the things that I'm weak on, with new adventures even at my <clears throat> young age. My Christian walk actually is a little bit like my career path in meteorology. You have days that are stormy, but guess what? The sun's gonna come back. I'm Ed Phillips, reporting to you from Scottsdale Bible Church, and this is my story. You know, I, uh, I've been able to watch Ed for uh, years as he's uh, been coming here, and, and you know, uh, he was at a, that Lost Canyon retreat that some of you were at uh, with us, and to, uh, to see him go from, you know, initially, did you catch this, experiencing God as Father? I mean, from his upbringing as an Episcopalian and to Judaism, and I think he was experiencing God as Father, and initially when he came here, and he would realize he was sovereign and in control and, you know, the ruler of all, but, but then at Lost Canyon, as the gospel was explained to him, he understood that, that he has a rugged redeemer and, and that there's grace and forgiveness to be found. And, and now, since that time, Ed is experiencing uh, a third a person of God, and that is the Holy Spirit. We have just a few minutes left, and we're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit this next winter, but let me introduce you to the third person of the Trinity, uh, without which you will not get God, and that is the Holy Spirit, whom is best described as our empowering enlightener. Uh, let me show you this from the scriptures in Acts chapter 5, uh, verses 3 and 4. This is that famous passage where uh, Ananias and Sapphira had lied to the apostles and kind of a stiff punishment, God struck them down. And so uh, here is the action going on with that. It says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? 
While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Wait a second, I thought that he lied to the Holy Spirit. Oh, I see, the Holy Spirit here is being equated as God. And this is all over the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is given the attributes of God. The Holy Spirit is described in only the way that God could. The Holy Spirit is at times, even like here, called God with a capital G. So the point being that theologians over the years have said, well, this is obviously a third person of the Trinity being, being shown here, being revealed to us here. It's the Holy Spirit. And so again, like the Father and like the Son, how are we to understand the Holy Spirit? Uh, two quick passages, and then we're going to wrap this up. Uh, first is, it, is in 1 Corinthians 2.10, it says, For to us God revealed them, meaning the truths of who he is, through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now guys, this is huge. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the truths of God to you and me. And most of the time, you might not even know it. Even before somebody becomes a Christian through the rugged Redeemer, the Holy Spirit is the one who enlightens, reveals, convicts, a la John 16. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the only one who can help us adequately understand the things of God. The great reformer John Calvin used to be seen muttering uh, a prayer over and over again as he was walking up to that great pulpit in Geneva and somebody asked him once, what are you muttering? He said, this is what I'm muttering. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Because he knew that if he was gonna open this book and try to help people understand God, the only way it was gonna happen was through the Holy Spirit enlightening or illuminating people's minds. Does that make sense? And so again, I, you know, somebody asked me the other day, can you pray to the Holy Spirit? What's the answer to that? I, after today, I hope, yeah. I, I mean, sometimes people try to say no, and I go, really, what are you smoking? I mean, the reality is, is, is that God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit, and we are to pray to God. And hopefully today you're seeing that if you do address a particular person of the Trinity, you address them as they have been revealed to you. So I do pray for the Father, and I pray people would experience his sovereignty and his sending nature. And then I pray for compassion and forgiveness from the Son. When I pray to the Spirit, and I do every single week, every day actually, you know what I'm praying? Give me wisdom. Give me understanding. I pray for all of you every Sunday. I say, God, I love this one, zap them with your spirit. May they get it. May they understand you. Because outside of the spirit, there is no enlightenment. Now notice a second reason or purpose for God the spirit. And it's Acts 1.8. Jesus is talking. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. So again, this is why I call him the, uh, what do I call him here? <laughs> the empowering enlightener because he empowers us to live life. Christians for years have called this the victorious Christian life. How can it be victorious? Because the Holy Spirit who lives in us who believe empowers us to live what God wants us to live. And so add it all up. You got a father who loves you who's in total control, reigns in heaven, rules the affairs of the earth. He is the sovereign sender. You have a son of God who loves you. He, it's, it's, he comes to this earth full of grace and truth. He went to a wooden cross to die for you in order to redeem you. And he now sits with the Father in heaven, interceding every moment of each day on your behalf. He's your rugged redeemer. And you have a Holy Spirit who loves you, so much so that he reveals the deep things of God to you and, and, and energizes you in order to do the things that God wants you to do. This is God, one in essence, three in person, and it's only when we get this that we get him. I'm telling you guys, I mean, don't go away and blow your coworkers out with discussions on the Trinity tomorrow, but as you and I discuss God with people, I challenge you, even in your own life, let's be triune in our discussion. 
Let's focus our discussion on the Father and on the Son and on the Holy Spirit because that's how we baptize. Let's go back to that first passage. I baptize you in the name of the Father because you get that he is the sovereign sender. In the name of the Son, your rugged Redeemer. And in the name of the Holy Spirit who enlightens you and empowers you. You get that, I promise you, you will get God. And so last thought, because we're way over time. Uh, what does God want from us in response to this? We're, we're gonna flesh these things out in the weeks to come, but this is what the Bible says. God wants you to believe, he wants you to obey, and he wants you to love. In response to how he has revealed himself to you, the first thing he says to you is believe. John 14, 1, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Believe. Uh, obedience. Jesus says that if you love me, you will obey my commands. Don't you just, don't you, isn't it hard to be around Christians who say they believe and then have no changed life? <laughs> We have a word for that. It's called a hypocrite. And so the reality is, is, that, is that we want to be Christians who believe and then add some texture to our walk and obey him. And then my favorite, love, because Jesus says in John 13, um, a new commandment I give you, to love one another. See, here's the deal. Man, if you walk around this week and you start working on belief and obedience and love and you focus all of that on the Trinity of God, you will get God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things of your word that are, are so rich and so important. And, and God, I pray for the people here at Scottsdale Bible Church that you would help us to be the kind of people that once we understand who you are and what you're about, just doggedly move in that direction. And so I pray, God, for each one of us here that as we give thought to our own life in light of who you are as the triune God, and our response of belief and obedience and love, I pray, God, that you would change us from the inside out, that you would draw us closer to you. And God, may we have moments where we say to you, I get it, and I get you. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given us that opportunity. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name, and we say together as a church, amen. amen. Hey, thanks for the few more minutes you gave me. God bless you guys. Have a great day.